Hello everyone, welcome to Neil's Rewind. My name is Anne van Maurik and in this episode Thijs Bouwknecht and I uh, speak with historian Kylie Thomas and journalist Michael Schmidt about the forced disappearances under apartheid in South Africa. Uh, so due to coronavirus, Thijs and I speak with Kylie and Michael online. Um, Thijs and I are located in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Carly in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and Michael in Johannesburg, South Africa. So, the exact figure of people who were forcibly disappeared is not known, but approximately 2,000 people were disappeared between 1960 and 1994. And Michael wrote a book about this history of forced disappearances. Uh, more specifically, he wrote a book about this chilling tactic of death flights which the South African government security forces uh, devised in the late 1970s. And by death flies, this meant the clandestine practice of throwing people, dead or alive, from planes so that their remains cannot be found. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Human Rights Violations during the apartheid years was established in 1995 and 300 cases of serious crimes under apartheid were referred in 2003, but state agents suspected of these crimes have hardly been prosecuted. In 2017, South African justice uh, reopened some cases and the processes are still going on today. And Kali Thomas writes about the reopening of the cases. The disappearances happened in the context of structural human rights violations. For example, more than 80,000 people were detained during apartheid. And between 1984 and 1989, around 50,000 people were held in detention without trial. Who exactly were the people who were targeted for disappearance? And how come cases of activists who were imprisoned, tortured and murdered are finally being reinvestigated and reopened. Yeah, before we get into detail about these disturbing histories, maybe it's good to elaborate a bit on the term disappeared. What is meant by this? Yeah, Michael, would you like to start since you wrote a whole book about it? <laughs> yes, sure. Um, and thank you so much and, and hello to your listeners. The term disappearance is, is usually being applied in, in the Latin American context, in the context of the, of the Argentine, Chilean, uh, Uruguayan, Paraguayan dirty war um, of, of the mid-70s to early 80s to mid-80s. It arises from what is in fact an actual military doctrine that evolved going further back into the aftermath of the, of the Second World War, of, of ridding oneself of political opponents by literally dumping their bodies in the ocean. So either, either alive or dead or drugged. The intention here is, is well, quite patently evil. The, the, the intention here is to be able to say, well, we never had this person in custody in the first place. Um, it's also deliberately designed to sever any possible forensic link between uh, the killers and those killed. It is designed also to alleviate um, the costs of maintaining people in custody. And by costs, I don't just mean the, the, the economic costs of feeding them and clothing them and housing them. 
But the potential political costs of having a Nelson Mandela-like um, cult figure uh, evolve behind bars, uh, of having this person's radical ideas perhaps infect the broader prison populace and result in ungovernability within the prison system. So there are many very compelling but equally equally wicked reasons for why people would be so-called disappeared. And I've specifically said that this is a secret doctrine. So what I'm saying is that this is an actual military doctrine. It's not the aberration of a couple of loose cannons. It is a, an actual doctrinal practice. It's secret because it's hidden within broader counterinsurgency strategies, but it's usually, as with often with torture, not an acknowledged component of counterinsurgency. Thank you. And I think we'll, we'll get back more into the specific details of, of disappearances or enforced disappearances, actually, as it's uh, labeled in international law as well. Um, Kylie, perhaps for our general listeners, um, having heard just what Michael said, can you provide us a little bit with um, a context, historical context, of what was going on in, in South Africa, but also in Southern Africa? Um, as I understood from Michael's book as well, is that it wasn't just an internal process and conflict, but also international. And I think for, for our listeners, it may actually be, be good to know these two different strands of, of violence and, and repression. So, so, so please feel free to, to give us some context uh, if you want. Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, I, th I think that, you know, people know that the um, start date for apartheid is 1948. Um, but the time that Michael's writing about was a, a time of intense repression um, in the country and across its borders. And in fact, one of the fascinating things that Michael documents in Death Flight, um, his book about uh, this doctrine of disappearance, is the way in which the knowledge about how to enact this particular form of terror um, on populations um, comes from uh, across the world, right? So this kind of expertise in disappearances and enforced disappearance um, did not originate in any one of these specific localities, but instead um, actually is a very interesting way that you can see how there's a kind of transnational knowledge network around these um, uh, methods of terror. Um, and that certainly happened across the border between South Africa and what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, since 1980. Um, and a transfer of some of the people responsible for um, terrible forms of atrocity within Zimbabwe during the independence war, the Chimarenga there, um, and then moving into South Africa and being assimilated into the security forces. And yeah, this is very uh, well documented in Michael's book. I've actually got a question about this transnational but also transhistorical link, which is important in this history. But I was also wondering who were the people who were targeted for this disappearance and who were the people who did it? Um, what's the more political context in this? Yeah, strangely enough, the, the, the primary targets were members of the armed wing of the Southwest African People's Organization. So SWAPO had an armed wing called People's Liberation Army of Namibia, PLAN. Uh, 
the territory which had originally been under a UN mandate had essentially been occupied by South Africa after that mandate uh, under South African control had expired. So they were in illegal occupation of this territory, hoping to hold back what they considered to be a, a geopolitical influx of communist-inspired uh, African liberation regimes that were sweeping southwards and threatening their grip on power. Although the, the primary unit that conducted these, these death flights was based in South Africa, the war that had evolved on its furthest, its outer borders, if you will, its outer perimeter, the, that is the border of then Southwest Africa, now Namibia and Angola, became the scene on which many of these captures, uh, interrogations, and finally disappearances were, were played out. It's, it's interesting that although the unit was also targeted at domestic resistance movements, in particular the African National Congress, ANC, and the Pan-Africanist Congress, the PAC, the two main primary liberation movements, there were other smaller parties as well, like Azapo, the, the victims wound up primarily being members of PLAN, of, of Swapo's armed wing. Some of the victims, however, were also own forces amongst their own guys who were considered to be security threats to the ultra-secret operations of this unit and its associated unit who were special forces uh, elements were engaged in. If people were determined to be threats, they were determined to have traitorous thoughts or objectives, they were also taken out of circulation. They are the minority of the, of the victims, however. The overwhelming majority are members of PLAN. So, so really, if we, we get to understand this, this, this picture that you're now sketching, is that it's both a, a part of the Cold War um, politics, and it sort of also imports perhaps methods that we see also in Latin America. Um, but also pertains really to, to national politics as well, which makes it very complex to see how, how, this, um, how this was working. And one of the questions I really had was, was there some connection between how South Africans managed to operate this death flight method with Latin Americans? Did they get the idea by themselves or was there a bigger network of people exchanging ideas on how to, to use these methods of, of terror and, and, and repression. I think it's very useful to, to frame this as you did within the Cold War and to see of apartheid South Africa as something of an echo of the likes of Chile and Pinochet, uh, a country that viewed itself as being on the front lines of the war against an expansionist communism. There, there, there are several lines of, of thought on the evolution of counterinsurgency doctrine that I've traced. There's a very distinct uh, British line that evolves out of the British experience of counterinsurgency in Malaya and in Kenya against the Mau Mau in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, going through uh, into the 60s in the case of Malaya. That's a very distinct counterinsurgency line. And there you see the rise of, in Kenya of what, what are called pseudo-gangs, where the authorities would disguise themselves as enemy forces in order to 
gather intelligence on enemy forces. Now, this is completely legitimate, as, as uh, no doubt many of you and your listeners will be aware, under the Geneva Conventions. Where it crosses the line is when you use your disguise to capture or kill your enemy, and then, then it becomes a war crime known as perfidy. The actual death flight doctrine, now this is, this is kind of curious, right? Because on 14th of June, 1979, Vice Admiral Ruben Chamorro, who was the head of the Naval School of Mechanics in Argentina, the, the primary detention and torture center, from which during his tenure some 4,000 people were disappeared by death flight. 14th of June 1979, he gets transferred to Pretoria as military attaché, along with a couple of notorious torturers, also from the Naval School of Mechanics, who also joined the embassy in Pretoria. Not even a month later, on 12th of July, 1979, South Africa begins its first death flights. The interesting thing, however, according to the direct face-to-face -face interview that I had with Colonel Johan Turon, who was the Special Forces Senior Staff Officer of Counterintelligence, who was personally responsible for and personally conducted most of the killings and most of the dumpings of bodies under these death flights. So he, he personally killed and dumped most of these people. And the figure we, are, we speculatively guesstimate at is around 420. He says, no, no, no. There is no Argentine influence. This was solely my own idea. So... This may be hubris. This may be pride. Um, there is clearly an Argentine influence. They weren't in the room at the time, well, by, by the records that I have and the interviews that I have, they weren't in the room when this decision was made. The, the primary executioner, if we can call him that, denies that there's an Argentine influence. But the suspicion of it is very strong. About this influences... It Are there also influences that you know of, of involvement of right-wing extremists, or is it just people doing their job, kind of banality of evil, which can be linked, of course? We, we had a distinction back then between, between conscripts and, and permanent force soldiers. So these are permanent force soldiers. They're career soldiers. They, they do what they do under instruction. The extent to which right-wing sympathies were prevalent within these formations is kind of interesting, particularly when you go back into the, into the Rhodesian origins, because this unit D40 at its, at its origin, certainly in its first two phases of evolution, is predominantly staffed by ex-Rhodesians. And the ex-Rhodesian contingent is quite complex. You get a lot of mercenaries, from places like the United States, uh, pitching up to fight the Rhodesian Bush War. You get a lot of uh, ex, let's say, foreign legionnaires who, this is what they trained at, this is what they're good at. They're looking for income, they're looking for, for a job. Um, you get a lot of neo-Nazis coming in from a thing called the Deutsche Kampfbund, which was a Frankfurt-based uh, veterans association. And it appears that a lot of these guys went down to Rhodesia to fight a race war. Um, so you get a real complexity. So you, uh, you get professional soldiers, you, get, you do get racists in the mix. However, there's, the lie to this thing is all 
revealed, I guess, at the end of the day when you, you see that every single person disappeared was a person of color. There are allegations that there were at least one white member of their own forces who was poisoned, but all of the disappearances by death flight were all people of color. So either 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 black Africans or uh, Africans of mixed race. Perhaps it would be good to um, to mention that at the same time uh, it, that so many people were being detained um, and being made subject to arbitrary arrest and imprisonment and torture um, and being murdered too by the security police within South Africa. Um, so there is that connection between the work that Michael's been doing and and what's been what was happening in the country at the time um, because um, there was a law which was passed um, that enabled the state to implement indefinite detention um, and it was first for a certain period of time and then longer and longer until it was indefinite. Yeah, that made clear that by the implementation of that law, the apartheid government actually expanded its executive power, right? Um, in view of what Kylie mentioned about these overcrowded prison situations, how come some people disappeared and others not? At some point, these uh, the system started taking strength because of the sheer numbers detained. And it was then determined that people who were essentially surplus to requirements because they uh, had basically given up all that they knew um, and who would who then could not be turned because there was a distinct uh, attempt to turn them, uh, turn them, uh, the term is Ascari. So basically they would be turncoats who would fight on our side uh, against the enemy. Um, if they couldn't be turned, so they were really hard nuts to crack, so we knew they were really militant, there'd be a problem in general population because they'd radicalize the other prisoners. We couldn't make use of them. They, they had nothing more to give us those were the ones primarily targeted for disappearance. To move a little fast forward, um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established in 1995 to bring about reconciliation of its people by uncovering the truth about human rights violations that had occurred during the period of apartheid. So, Kylie, you currently write about the reopening of some cases of police killings of anti-apartheid activists. Can you maybe briefly introduce us into the history of the process of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? More specifically, I'm really curious about how it could happen that so much of this past, which we just elaborated upon, remained unknown despite the hearings of the TRC. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think that um, one maybe it would be helpful for um, listeners less familiar with the history of the TRC um, to just uh, give a brief overview of the process um, where the hearings were convened um, between 1996 and 1998 um, to investigate human rights abuses that were perpetrated between the 1st of March 1960 and the 31st of December 1993. And the reason for that start date is because, of course, apartheid began in 1948, but they uh, chose to begin with um, the time of the Sharpeville massacre. And that time period has also been contentious. Um, in addition to the victim hearings, 
at which those who'd been subject to human rights violations testified about their experiences. There were also hearings at which members of the apartheid state security forces provided accounts of the crimes that they'd committed. And there was a very controversial amnesty clause which made it possible for those guilty of committing gross violations of human rights to evade punishment on condition that they made full disclosure of their acts. Um, but this also meant that some of the atrocities that were committed under apartheid were made publicly known. However, the inner workings of the state were largely kept secret. And even after the TRC hearings drew to a close, there's much that remains unknown, contested, repressed and silenced. And that's part of what Michael's book begins to uncover, um, something, you know, things that were not disclosed at the TRC. I mean, so that's just to give some insight into the background of, or, or, or a little overview of what the TRC was. And it was a very important process for the society. Um, and the um, records of the TRC are available online. And it's actually quite a vital resource that has not really been um, used as it could be. I think there's much work to be done to go backwards and to reopen things. And in fact, that is part of what's happening now in the present, um, where some of the unresolved cases that um, when the TRC drew to a close, there were over 300 cases um, of instances where people who had been murdered by the security police or tortured and disappeared um, remained unresolved. And so those are the cases that um, have been uh, repressed uh, for the last uh, 20 years and um, have just been reopened uh, since 2017. Um, Kylie, um, if you Look at the records which you just mentioned. Um, is there any mention of the cases that has, that Michael has researched as well, or um, what 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 can we find there, and what can't we find in the report? Yeah, I mean, what 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 is missing um, is quite massive, um, and part of the reason for that is because of um, the destruction of records. Um, that took place in the last years of the apartheid regime. So in the early 1990s, um, the NIS, the National Intelligence Service, destroyed approximately 44 tons of archival records. Um, and so that's, yeah, obviously a problem. Um, but um, another problem was it, it, simply that so many people did not apply for amnesty and did not present themselves before the TRC. So they had the opportunity to do that and to disclose what had happened. And for the most part, those people continue to live uh, in impunity. And that's part of the significance of the reopening of these inquests now um, is that there's a chance uh, that some of these people will finally be forced to um, face the consequences of their actions. How come these cases uh, are finally being reinvestigated and reopened? Um, I think there's one specific case which you do research to. Uh, maybe you would speak about this? Yeah, so um, I think that the key reason these cases have been reopened um, 
has been a result of the tireless campaigning on the part of family members of the victims, um, people who were tortured and killed. And, and they've been supported by organizations in the country, um, like Kulamani Support Group, which was founded um, in cooperation with the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation soon after the TRC. In fact, I think at the same time as the TRC. Also very important, the Legal Resources Center, for instance, and the South African Foundation for Human Rights. And there are others too, because the civil society organizations in, in South Africa are very strong um, and campaign um, in support of reopening um, these kinds of things and campaign in general for social justice in the country. In a more cynical view, I guess you could see that these cases are finally being reopened. And now that many of those who are responsible for these atrocities have died. In fact, uh, some of them reopened like immediately after some of the key um, perpetrators passed away. And so they can no longer stand trial or can, they can also not incriminate others. So that's a more cynical view of it, but it's certainly been a long struggle. So the case that I've been focusing on has been um, the um, case of Ahmed Timmel, who was an anti-apartheid activist who was murdered by members of the security branch at um, what was then known as John Foster Square, um, now Johannesburg um, Central Police Station. Um, and the police claimed that he had committed suicide by throwing himself out of the 10th floor window, um, an interrogation room on the 10th floor of the building. And um, at the inquest into his death um, at the time that he died in, in 1971, October 1971, he was 29 years old. He was the 22nd person to die in detention. And I think he was the seventh person um, who allegedly committed suicide um, while being held in detention. And of course, his family never accepted that he had committed suicide. It was blatantly clear to everyone that he had not, and particularly because he had signs of torture on his body. Um, and yeah, so his mother testified at the TRC. And unfortunately, none of the perpetrators came forward to disclose what had happened um, and how he had died or to ask for amnesty in the case. And so since then, his nephew, Imtiaz Kaji, has been campaigning for justice um, to have this inquest reopened. And finally, it was reopened in 2017, and it's been a landmark verdict. Um, the the um, 1972 inquest verdict was overturned, and the court found that Ahmed Timmel had been murdered and re reopened the possibility for apartheid-era perpetrators to be prosecuted. So when I hear you speak, Kylie, I think, I think it's very interesting to see this historical line where in the 1990s there was perhaps a preference for truth um, and perhaps a willingness to trade truth for amnesty and those kind of things. But currently the trend is more towards criminal prosecutions and individual criminal accountability um, in terms of the perpetrator, but also a sense of justice which is more individualized as to what had happened to a person in a family. 
Is this a trend that you have seen as well? Or would you think that the era of apartheid was so incredibly big that perhaps it warrants another TRC to, to basically do some kind of process of historical clarification? Sorry, it's a large question, but I, I would really like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, certainly the, the, the reopening of these cases um, reveals how um, the TRC was certainly not a complete process and how much remains um, to still be done. Something that's very important is that even at the time of the TRC, um, there were many people who opposed this um, move towards um, truth and reconciliation and were calling for justice. And in particular, one case that um, is perhaps most notable is the family of Steve Biko, who was the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement, um, a brilliant thinker and activist. And he was murdered on the 12th of September, 1977. And his family um, did not accept the TRC process and there were among several families who refused um, to, to uh, participate in the TRC proceedings. And so that um, uh, process was contested right from the beginning and remains so. And there were others who very strongly argued that we needed to have reconciliation. Approximately 25,000 people died in political violence in those last years of apartheid. And so the TRC, of course, was seen as a way to um, bring some kind of closure and bring people together. And in some ways, uh, you could say was successful in that. Um, but on the other hand, it's left us with this unresolved history. Going back to you, Michael, um, because I think this is a really interesting point of discussion. And when I think about enforced disappearances, and I'm thinking about cases in the Netherlands um, against the father of our current queen, who of course was part of the military junta in Argentina, there were cases made um, to file a civil suit against him in terms of an um, argument that the crime of enforced disappearance is usually a crime without an end. So it only ends when the disappearance stops. So when you, know, when you find out where somebody actually is. In terms of South Africa and in your research, are there many cases or instances where actually the crime is still unsolved and hence still ongoing? And what would that mean for a choice or decision in terms of either truth-seeking or, or criminal prosecution. Um, I would really like to hear your thoughts on that. This is something that I, I, I came up upon purely by accident, actually. I, I, I'd speculated previously that there had been what I call a pact of forgetting in Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but they related to South Africa, apartheid South Africa's cross-border raids and... Uh, wars and engagements and abductions and assassinations and all this kind of thing, sabotage. And, um, and I stumbled across evidence that this, in fact, had occurred, that, that over a seven-year period between 1997 and early uh, mid-February, 17th of February, uh, 2003, um, the very top of the apartheid government, in other words, the deputy presidents, 
Thabo Mbeki and then Jacob Zuma and a hand-picked group of cabinet ministers. So hand-picked that the other cabinet ministers didn't even know this was happening. Conducted a series of very apparently jovial conversations, dinners over cognac over the seven-year period with the top apartheid war chiefs, in particular uh, General Yanni Haldenhuis and General Constant Fulian, who died last year, to ensure that no prosecutions came out of the TRC. Now, this should be really shocking to South Africans because it means that the government was, on the one hand, pursuing a statutory open public process, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that had as its intent the prosecution of people who did not qualify for amnesty, perpetrators who had not qualified for amnesty. And yet, behind the scenes, their top leadership was deliberately sabotaging that very process. What's interesting is when the generals walked out on the talks on 17th of February 2003, basically the ANC was demanding a, a further amnesty for truth type process on a case-by-case basis. The generals didn't want that. They wanted a blanket amnesty. As had they been granted in the case of Southwest Africa, by the way. So they were hoping to get away with, in the South African theater, what they'd gotten away with in Southwest Africa. And uh, so this is where the, the talks came unstuck. But what is fascinating is that after the generals walked out, the ANC continued on their own bat with this process and up until the extent at which they were in fact illegally interfering with the process and the independence of the National Prosecuting Authority, shooting them down at every single point at which they tried to initiate prosecutions, these 300 cases that Kylie mentioned, and there was some 21 cases, I think, that were, were primed and ready to go. Um, one case accidentally almost got to court, and they managed to resolve that behind closed doors through a plea bargain process. Not one single one of those cases to this day has gone forward. Um, and this is because the government itself was concerned that they would find their own men and a few women facing war crimes tribunals alongside their apartheid enemy. So this was our pact of forgetting. This is our quid pro quo. And this is why, this is why even at the, even at the moment, I mean, we, we are talking prosecution in the Rodriguez case, but it came, it came about via the back door. They weren't getting prosecutions. They weren't getting prosecutions. So eventually they had to go the roundabout route of doing an inquest in order to get a, a ruling that said, no, this, this guy was murdered. Okay, well, that case, well, who murdered him? Well, let's go forward on a murder trial. This has been the, the, the thing that has hopefully cut the Gordian knot. And we will see how things further evolve. I, I don't know, as I say, whether it's going to escalate to war crimes uh, tribunal level or whether it's going to be kept at common plain garden variety murder. Thank you for this, Michael. Um... Hearing about this history and the cover-up of the disappearances and thinking about the victims, this last question might seem a bit odd, but I do want to ask you, since I really want to hear more about your specific thoughts on this, why do you feel it's so important that these stories get told? 
Well, because there's 400 odd families that have absolutely no clue what happened to their, their kids, you know. Um, you know, those families have not had any kind of, it's, yes, maybe this is an overused term, this closure thing, but um, they, they're never going to have bones to bury, which is pretty important in Afri African traditional cultures in any case. Um, that, that heartache is going to linger forever, but um, some sort of resolution is important, and recognition that this happened in the first place. What about you, Kylie? I think that reopening the inquests and telling the stories of activists who were killed during apartheid is also a critical step away from impunity, um, which is an ongoing problem in the country, um, and towards justice, as Michael said, for the victims' families. Um, it's also significant for the country as a whole um, to know the truth about what happened. But not only that, to also to recognize that the struggle for justice is not yet complete. Thank you, Kylie and Michael, for your time and insights about the forced disappearances under apartheid in South Africa. And in our conversation and previous to our conversation, you both mentioned some websites which might be of interest for those who want to know more about the book Michael wrote and about the reopening of the TRC cases. And um, I will write these texts on the Neil page of, the, of Neil Rewind, so everybody can find it there. Mm -hmm.